Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. A lot of drama. A uh, dramatic week for uh, much bigger reasons, but dramatic week for us since, since we let you know that we're getting sued by the Rebels, Kean Bexty. And uh, I, I guess those are impactful words. We're getting sued by the Rebels, Kean Bexty. Damn. How can we help? How can we help you fight? A lot of, lot of people stepping up. People want to give us money for that. Listen, I want to talk about that. It's crowdfunding month and um, the internet likes fights. The internet likes combat. It's good for crowdfunding. Lucky for us, happened during crowdfunding month, right? I don't want you to give us money to fight this legal battle. Look, if I need it, I'll ask for it. If it gets there, if, if the chips are down and we need it, I will ask you uh, to help uh, a legal fund. But that's that's not what we're doing here. The truth of the matter is because people helped us build this company. One of the things they helped us build was a company that was anticipating having to fight for our reporting. We bought libel insurance and that was part of crowdfunding years ago. I mean, there, there are expenses with this. There's a deductible and then just the amount of time you have to spend uh, on something like this. It's, it's not like there aren't costs, but um, we're good. And uh, that goes for the whole thing. This has been a year uh, two years of opposition that I could probably monetize, you know, like we, we, like everything you could imagine. Our website was knocked off the internet by a denial of service attack during the season of strange, dirty tricks against us. Somebody was offering little micropayments to people to downgrade our Google search rankings and upgrade Kilberger and we sort like strange stuff happening, stuff that we know for a fact. The Kilbergers hired this Republican strategy firm 
in the states that was connected to uh, Marco Rubio's failed, like these these Trumpian PR people, uh, and and then you know we had all of these all of these anti-Canada land editorials written about us by people connected to the Marco Rubio campaign. I know that they hired a security firm, private investigators, to find out what school my kids go to. That's good stuff for crowdfunding, right? Um, I'm not going to ask you to pay us for that. Like, that's not, doesn't make sense. Uh, that's not a reason for you to give us money. What am I trying to say here? I don't want you to hire us to fight the rebel. I want you to hire us to cover the rebel. Does this matter? Is this, does this distinction matter? Shouldn't I just, like, any reason why you want to give me money should be good enough for me, right? I think it does matter. Like, what are we trying to accomplish here? I, I get everybody really angry at Ezra Levant, Kean Bexley, and ask you for money. He goes to his base, and he he characterizes us how he wants to. He could go if he wanted to and raise money against us. And then it's like a boxing match, uh, and, and you pick your favorite. That's not the project. If we are a combatant who you are hiring to vanquish and uh, destroy and shame and dunk on your foes, I don't know that we can cover those people with any kind of legitimacy if they're like our enemy. I mean, we are sometimes in a position where we have to fight if, if, if they <laughs> sue us. But the goal here is to cover these people. The goal here is to do journalism. Uh, put us in, coach. Put us in, hire us to do the journalism. That's it. And I think that will mean less of a windfall, but it's the right kind of contract. It's the right kind of support. And that's what I'm asking you to do. And my God, we're doing well. We hit our first goal. Thank you. Those of you uh, who, who supported us to get us to 1,000 new or upgraded supporters, uh, and that money is going right to the journalism and support for our journalists and, and editorial operations here. And now we are trying to hire uh, somebody to do a permanent French language beat um, after that, we're going to get a permanent indigenous news beat. So look, there is a fight. Uh, it is a fight right now to tell the truth. It is a fight right now to fight for facts and to do that with legitimacy. Um, I, we have to do it a certain way. And, and that's what I'm asking you to buy into. That's what I'm asking you to sign up for. And I think it's cool. I think it's a cool project to, to be a funder of this because there are not many things that you can put your money towards that, uh, actually, I think we've proven it. Um, can do that, that, that we can keep a free press alive and an independent press alive and fight to bring you facts in the face of so much resistance and pressure. There's just the forces that want to suppress the truth. But man, it's cool. It's cool that it, they can't. They're unable to do it. Um, and, and that's because people are behind this. And I want you to be one of them. And I want to give you some socks. Go to canadaland.com slash join and check out the Dooley Notebook. Check out the socks. Check out everything else, the t-shirts. Or click on the link in your show notes. Come and get on board with what we're doing here because I, I, I think we have an exciting year ahead. And I think you're going to be proud that you did fund this when you see what we're going to accomplish in the next 12 months and, and beyond that. We're building something that we, we, we want to be here as, as a part of things for a very long time. And I think that, I think that we need it. I think everybody needs more stuff like this. Canadaland.com slash join. During his trial for manslaughter in Thunder Bay, Ontario, last week, Braden Bushby got to tell his side of the story. He didn't deny that it was him who threw that metal trailer hitch out the window of a moving car. It struck a pedestrian, 34-year-old mother, Barbara Kentner. Hit her in her abdomen, it ruptured her small intestine. 
That's an injury from which she later died. So he didn't deny that that was, that was him. Braden Bushby pled guilty to aggravated assault for doing that. But it was not a murder. He didn't have to argue that. That had already been determined before his trial even started when uh, a second-degree murder charge was dropped by the Crown. Now, his side of the story, he told the judge, is that, you know, despite what the media would have you believe, this was not a racially motivated attack against an indigenous woman. All that he and his pals wanted to do, and this is from the testimony of his buddy Nathan, was go yell at hookers. And, and yes, perhaps it was Braden Bushby who drank all that whiskey. Perhaps it was Braden Bushby who was laughing as the car sped away. Maybe it was him who cried out, yeah, I got one. But that doesn't make it a hate crime. Now, as for Barbara Kentner, Bushby's lawyer argued, you know, maybe her death was somebody else's fault. His lawyer asked Barbara Kentner's sister, Melissa, who was there at the time, why didn't you take her uh, right to the hospital? Could it be that because going to the hospital would mean you'd have to break your court-ordered curfew and you were afraid of getting in trouble with your probation officer? No, replied Melissa Kentner. After my sister was struck, she just wanted to go home and rest. She didn't want to go to the hospital. I would have gladly broken that curfew if I could have saved my sister. Okay, Bushby's lawyer argued, well, maybe then it was something else that killed Barbara Kentner. Maybe something besides that trailer hitch. Maybe it was her underlying liver disease that did her in. Or maybe there was something wrong with her mind that made her somehow responsible for her own death. Barbara Kentner's psychiatric records were entered into evidence. So all of these other factors um, were entered into evidence. These personal medical records were entered into evidence. And even if the medical experts themselves disagree with Bushby's story, and they do, the forensic pathologist uh, did not list her psychological state or her liver disease as the cause for death. He determined that the cause of death was blunt force trauma. Even so, Braden Bushby's lawyer said that this case is about the legal determination of Bushby's guilt, not the medical. So that was Braden Bushby's story. He didn't tell it himself. He never took the stand, never had to explain what he was thinking when he killed Barbara Kentner, never apologized to Barbara Kentner's sister or to her kid. Braden Bushby's lawyer told his story for him. And I guess we'll see if the judge liked that story when the ruling comes next month. One of the reporters covering the trial remarked on the indignities that the dead must suffer in court. So much of Barbara Kentner's private medical information on display here tweeted the CBC's Jody Porter. Pray that the cause of your death is not a crime, lest the details of the contents of your bowel become public knowledge. Jody Porter has been thinking a lot about who gets to tell whose story and what it means to tell other people's stories and why we do it. She wrote an essay in a recent issue of Maison of Magazine that stopped me in my tracks. It was about her own career as a white journalist telling stories about indigenous people. It was about Gord Downey telling the story of Chani Wenjak, the indigenous boy who died in the cold 54 years ago when he was trying to walk home 600 kilometers from residential school. Run along the river on 
Gord Downey knew about that story because his brother had heard Jody Porter's CBC radio documentary about it. And it became Gord Downey's final major artwork, Secret Path, an album and a book and a stage show that was hailed as a triumph, an act of incredible generosity from an artist who was striving to heal a nation even as he faced his own death. If this is the last thing I do, then I'm very happy, you know. And if I have any pull or any push at all, this is what I want to do. Nothing else really matters to me. But Jody Porter came to see it as something else. After telling Canada that story about Gord Downey and all that he did to help Indigenous people and heal a broken Canada, Porter now realized that a more fitting headline would be Residential School Survivor Helps Aging Rock Star Confront Death. That might sound harsh, but she did not let herself off the hook either. Reflecting on her career of reporting on Indigenous stories, Jody Porter wrote that she had imagined herself all the while as a person with no particular identity or past to speak of, a generic hero on a white horse galloping to the defense of victims. That simple fable, she wrote, didn't leave much room for the indigenous people in those stories to be actual full people. And that simple fable also allowed her to avoid seeing herself. Maybe she was not a nobody from nowhere. Maybe telling stories about other people's trauma, she wrote, was a way to deal with her own history as a survivor of sexual abuse by her father. The evidence entered into the public record in this essay was intensely personal information about Jody Porter. But she got to make that call. After all, she was telling a story about herself. It's very different when we tell other people's stories, even when we think we're helping. And in the history of Canada, that's especially true when we think we are helping Indigenous people. Jody Porter wrote that every attempt at telling someone else's story adds another layer of grief when it fails. And Jody Porter joins me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Edward Dodd, Kay Hendry, Justin Rain, Vicki Templin, Mark Latham, Jessica Yarish, John Gray, and Justin. My name is Justin, and I'm a reporter in Hamilton. I've been supporting Canada Land for several years because I think it's important for journalists to face as much scrutiny as we put onto other people. I've been consistently happy with how Canada Land has expanded to do more reporting and to hire more people, and I'm excited to see where the company goes in the next couple of years. Keep up the good work. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have 
magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Jody, you've been covering the uh, Braden Bushby trial all week. How are you doing? Yeah, you know, a lot more people are asking me that uh, after this trial than than other legal proceedings I've covered, and and I really appreciate the awareness that that um, these are difficult things, and certainly not as difficult for me as for the family that's there. the The really remarkable thing um, that you know maybe it's always gone on, or maybe I'm just more aware of it these days. But um, there were lots of elders around, um, and there was a sacred fire burning the whole time the trial was on at the request of the family. And in previous reporting that I've done, when I have been aware of those sorts of ceremonial things, I've been hesitant to go to them or or take part in them because I had this feeling that it would show some kind of bias. Um, and I spent some time the last little while debunking that for myself. And so I did go and visit the sacred fire and I had a good cry there mm-hmm. and it, it really helped. And I don't think it biased me in covering the trial. And I, it also made me consider that you know, a lot of the work we do as journalists kind of support and legitimate the courts. And we're hearing from Indigenous people in particular that Canadian courts don't feel legitimate, are not legitimate. And what would it mean to, instead of covering the trial, to cover what's happening at the sacred fire? And so that's what I'm thinking about at the end of a very long week. Yeah. I mean, why would that not be part of this story T- to the extent that this story is a sick joke of if a indigenous woman was walking down the street, minding her own business and was struck down by a metal object hurled at her, would they find a way to make it her fault? And they, they are trying to do that. And so 
the relevance of this case is in no small part what it means to her community. And I mean, I think certainly, you know, within the the way that journalism is currently practiced, when it's practiced well, there is room for us to talk to victims and their families and talk about what it means. I think what I, I'm leaning towards here is a way of legitimizing the ceremony, the First Nations ceremony, as justice itself. And it's tricky, right, because we want to hold institutions to account. And in the ideal world, we would do both. And I'm thinking hard at the end of this week about how, as a journalist, I could do a better job of upholding Indigenous justice traditions um, and not spending so much time, you know, writing down the words of a defense lawyer who wants to make a case that someone was going to die anyway, so they deserve to die in a violent way. And that that person is an Indigenous woman is no small part of that. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to be more thoughtful about our practice here as we find ourselves more frequently telling stories about Indigenous people and Indigenous issues. And one thing that we really try to do is include Indigenous people uh, when possible as the storytellers. And so we had a conversation about, uh, is this appropriate? You know, like, should I be talking with you about these things? And I think what we realized is that what I wanted to talk with you about, based on what you wrote, is not Indigenous people. It's about us and, and our role telling these stories that are complicated stories to tell and that we're not sure we're the right people to tell and uh, what you wrote about so honestly and incisively uh, are the complexities of that. So uh, I think that that's, those are conversations that should happen. I'm really glad to have this conversation with you. Yeah. And and I, I agree with you. You know, I was, I, I am conscious of the privilege that I've had of the amount of airtime and space I've already taken up and I'm trying to be very deliberate about making space for others. And on the other hand, I do notice the exhaustion, especially this year, among Indigenous people who are called on again and again to explain Canadians to themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I agree that it is up to us, you and I, as to Canadians, as two Canadian journalists, to have some hard conversations about what we do and how we do it. And I also recognize, in a weird way, the privilege I had of being sick for several years where I could step back and really reflect on these things. And I, I know that people who are in the thick of it um, don't have that time. And it's hard. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that you facing your mortality and, and the way that you write about um, and how how it changed your thinking about about what you do. That's something I want to get into with you. Before though, I I I need to know something procedurally about what happened. I just curiosity, and I'm not a, a courtroom reporter. Why didn't Braden Bushby take the stand? You know, why 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 wouldn't the Crown, who are, who they're talking about, um, how to feel the weight of the trailer hitch in his hand? he would have had to have known that that could have killed somebody. Why wasn't that put to him as a question? Um, Do you know? I don't know. And the Crown is a reluctant talker. Um, 
I'm also curious about the fact that the people in the car with him weren't called to testify in open court. We know from two of the the people who were in the car, we know their testimony from a preliminary hearing. We got the transcript of that, but they didn't have to answer questions in court about their behavior or their potential culpability that night. I can't quite figure out whether I just see it more clearly now or that this case is just a really, really obvious example of how when a victim is an Indigenous person, they end up being the person on trial and their family. (laughs) Barbara Kentner's sister feels like, and it felt like being there, that she was on trial. She was. I mean, I, I, I know from your reporting, like, I mean, I don't know how to not be enraged. The, uh, that Melissa Kentner would be accused, why didn't you take her right to the hospital? Is it because of your own troubles with uh, the authorities? And then it to be suggested to the judge that she actually is the one who is responsible for her sister's death. And the guys in the car laughing and the guy who threw the trailer hitch, they don't have to get up there an answer to themselves. I don't know how that isn't just, you know, appalling to anyone's sense of basic justice. It was hard to hear. Uh, you know, it, it, this is uh, oscillating between the emotions of this, but also just what can be a ghoulish curiosity and a, and a, and a, a fascination with the, with all of the details. This is what you've explored, and and you 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 reached a verdict in the piece that you wrote for Maisonneuve, um, reflecting on, on your career of writing about indigenous people and the issues, the, the drinking water, uh, overcrowded houses, uh, mold reserves, the residential schools, your verdict was that you came to understand your work as pity porn for a hungry audience. That's a bit harsh, don't you think? You know, it's curious and I may have to do some follow-up research on this. That seems to be almost universally the response I have had from white men was that I was too hard on myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I that I haven't had that response from anyone other than white men. Um, so <laughs> perhaps that says that white men are more forgiving of their own mistakes, maybe. Um, I, I don't know that the piece is a, a, an out-and-out condemnation of my work. I, you know, I came north to Sioux Lookout to work for a First Nations Communication Society as a naive um, young woman, and I did the best that I could. I came with an open heart, mm-hmm. and I had people tell me that that you know that 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 is medicine and that is protection when you're going into communities where there are difficult stories to be told, and and I took that to heart, and I did the best I could with the limited resources that I had and the limited education I had. And 
I have learned much more and I have much more to learn. And so the piece I wrote is a, a reflection of that. Well, you're, you're not shy from implicating yourself, so I don't think I should be shy from <laughs> being implicated no, here Not at well. all, no. What you wrote about that really gripped me was stories and theft. Who gets to tell whose stories and, and the chain of custody of a story. And when you're writing about your involvement in the Chani Wenjack story, like it was so interesting to take it through that chain of custody, that chronology, where of course one would hope that that originally is Chenny Wenjack's story, but the dead tell no tales. It, like the, the story of his death is not his to tell. He's not here. And, and it, it's in McLean's that it first pops up and, and he's misnamed the lonely death of, of Charlie Wenjack. And then you trace it through, uh, a indigenous folk singer, Willie Dunn in the seventies and a, a Stolo writer uh, of course, Lee Maracle, but then Lee Maracle asks Willie Dunn for permission mm -hmm. uh, to, to tell somebody else's story and then tracing it through to your radio documentary about Jenny Wenjack for the CBC, which is heard by Gord Downey's brother brought to Gord Downey. And then in this sort of final ar artistic work, his secret path, but then you, you bring it full circle to Chani's sister Pearl on stage at, at a performance of, of secret path. I want, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that chain of custody and about what's right and what's wrong, like who gets to tell that story? Well, what I think of, and what I was thinking about when I wrote this is that really the story of our people, people of settlers here is that we came to a land where people already lived and we, we claimed that we discovered it. And now we have this storytelling tradition of continually discovering the same stories and putting our flag on them, our byline on them, our stamp on them. So I did think very much about the story of Chani Wenjack and to whom it belongs. And also in parallel with that, there is this my own, and I call it my own, but it is also my sister's story. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I ask her for her consent to publish this piece, to use her name and talk about her and this story. And yeah, I think the piece is very much a question about who has the right to tell whose story. And I think it also is important that we talk about the tools that we have to tell those stories. And one of the things I keep bumping up against as a journalist is the narrative device, the tool that we have is incredibly blunt. And it kind of goes like this. There's a victim, you should consider them, you know, as human as you can, but they're a victim. So they're kind of pitiful. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make you feel bad for them. And then I'm going to present with you someone who is to blame from that. And then I'm going to, to blame for that. And then I'm going to wrap it all up neatly. And you can go on your way. And me, I don't and exist. Like, I, I'm just this <laughs> right, floating yes. mist yeah. just telling you these yes. things. Yes. One of the problems with that is that 
it is very individualized as well. You know, the format for uh, a, a news story is someone doing something for a reason. So, you know, it can't be a group because that's not specific enough. You're really trying to get that one representative person. And the reality of our lives is that we are so interconnected that that's not necessarily true, that you can pin it on any one person doing one thing for a reason. And yet we struggle to have the tools to be reflective of that. And then the end result of this is, you're left with this piece of information that, you know, at best raises awareness about something. And I feel like we have reached the limit of what raising awareness is worth. Like, I have been covering the lack of clean drinking water in Nishkandiga for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And the community has been without clean drinking water longer than that. That's just as long as I've been at CBC. Um, if you are unaware that there are places within Canada where a generation of children have not had water to drink, I'm not sure a news story is really, like, I, I just, I don't see that awareness can be, what we're after here. It, it It isn't working. So much of this is like about us working out our own stuff and projecting that onto indigenous people. And you write about. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I, I'm, I'm not. Go ahead. Can you, I, I, I'm not sure I want to agree with that before I, I explore that a little bit more with you. What do you mean? Well, you write about Gord Downey. Uh, being kind of hailed for, you know, uniting the country on his way out. And, and um, there was an aspect where he was using indigenous trauma, specifically the, this, this Ch- Chani Wenjak's death, to deal with his own impending death. That there was something being worked out w- hmm. with his own trauma and the trauma that he was documenting. But you, 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 you don't leave yourself uh, out of that. You, you write about your journey from kind of conceiving yourself as sort of a nobody from nowhere, just a generic force telling truths and telling stories to understanding that there was some connection between the traumas that you were reporting on and, and, and your own trauma. Yeah, and again, I don't think that it is a black and white thing. I mean, I think the fact that I grew up in a home where the truth that I lived, um, that my father sexually assaulted me, was not the truth of my family, was not the truth of my small town, where my family was an upstanding, law-abiding family. And so... um, you know, it's it's it is a traumatic thing <laughs> to to be sexually assaulted as a child, to be the victim of incest, and that doesn't make me a victim for life. And I get this opportunity to write my own story in which 
well, some may say I've been hard on myself. I got to tell it myself in my own way. And as you were talking to Emily uh, Nicola a few weeks ago, everyone wants to be the hero in their own story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we fall down as journalists is we forget that and for our own devices, for our own news making, we choose who are the heroes and who are the victims. And we haven't evolved to a point where we have the tools to capture that nuance. And so, like, I also think about this in terms of cancer and cancer survival. I mean, the the treacle that we pass off <laughs> as the, the people's story, like either you're like you lost your battle with cancer or you're a hero because you ran a cancer marathon. Like it's just, it's so immature mm-hmm. and like we've got to do this better on all fronts. Yeah. We, we, like the world is a much more complicated place than we are making it out to be in our journalistic work. It was interesting to me that when you write about your cancer diagnosis, when, when you were facing your own mortality, your response was, here's what you wrote. I stopped working, removed myself from social media, practiced the invisibility that death would inevitably bring. I asked my boss to assure me there would be no mention of my illness no on-air acknowledgement of my absence. Almost more than death, I feared becoming the object of pity. I desperately did not want anyone to do to me what I was just realizing I had done to so many others. I did not want to be cast as a victim. I did not want someone else to tell my story as though it was a tragedy. I did not want somebody else to tell my story so they could feel better. That almost sounds as as impossible and, and problematic, I guess, uh, a desire as the need to insert yourself at the center of every story, which maybe I can identify more with, but, but, you, but that's, and you write about that, the, the privilege of, of sort of disappearing. Why was that such a fearful idea for you to be in someone else's story? You know, one of the reasons I wrote this piece was because that, you know, I almost met Gord Downey once anecdote that's in it was a was a dinner party trick I would do. You know, I I almost met Gord Downey, but I didn't because I'm I'm on the outside of all this, you know, cozy flannel shirt wearing Canadiana. Um I, I'm an outsider to all of that. Except that, you know, I was I work for the CBC. I'm pretty deep inside that. And I couldn't figure out it was really troubling me as I was facing my own mortality. I couldn't figure out, was that, is the Shawnee Wenjack story the, the peak of my career or the fact that it became the secret path? Is that like the most shameful thing in my career? And so I had to write this to figure that out. And I I feel like I... I did figure it out, and it, it's that it, it's neither. It's far more nuanced than that, as you know. I, I probably could have concluded from the beginning, but that is to say that the act of telling stories and writing stories is a kind of magic. And I believe 
that because they are so powerful and they do have the potential for healing, that we need to get better at it. Mm -hmm. No matter whose story you're telling, you're always just telling your own. That's what exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I live in Thunder Bay. Famous uh, writer from these parts, Jane Urquhart. Her mm -hmm. famous novel, The Underpainter. And there's a, a part in it where the the main character, who's a painter all his life, realizes that he has actually painted the same picture every time he came to the canvas. And I I I think that is true of my career as a journalist. And I think it's the true of many people involved in in creative work. You know, we it's always about us, and so you know we have to get better at at being in the in relationships like the ones we have with Indigenous people. We have to be the 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 best us. This is this concept of reconciling with yourself before you can reconcile with others. You you have to work on yourself yeah. first. And and I think that too often we this is the projection I think you alluded to earlier that we if we haven't reconciled with ourselves we bring that to these stories and apply it to other people and. I think that's what I was trying to avoid. You know, I, I just had this image of, of my colleagues who were feeling bad that I was not among them anymore, creating this version of myself, of me, that, that isn't me, and presenting it on air. I, like, I really desperately did not want that to happen. Yeah. You know, it, you put it better than I did. I mean, these are personal things, right? Uh Gordowney knowing that he's going to die and and somehow dealing with that through a kid who died over 50 years ago and being kind of hailed and glorified and you facing mortality and looking at your own history of abuse. Those are personal stories, but I kept thinking, this is not just about you and Gordowney. Like, what is this country's trauma that we're trying to sort out and we can't face it? So we tell stories of terrible things happening to these poor people, but is that just how we're trying to somehow like find some way of actually dealing with what we did and what happened here and what this whole thing is built on? And is that fair to the people who supposedly these stories are about? Well, I mean, maybe. I, I think my bigger concern is that some of the journalism that that's done is a way of justifying what's happened. Mm -hmm. And even if that's not the intention, I think one of the problems I have with the secret path is that the story goes like this. I, I'm going to tell you about a little boy who died running away from residential school. And then it's all about his dying. And this is, you know, talk about rediscovering and reversioning the same old story. You know, this is the dying race trope. This is the thing that got trotted out in about Barbara Kentner in Braden Bushby's trial. This is this is what we keep going back to. If we keep landing on the victim story, then we justify our own actions. We, we, you know, we hurl the trailer hitch out the window and, and we say, oh, but we didn't mean to. 
and and you know people were sick and dying anyway. Yeah. Uh, or it's too hard to get water to a place that's so far away. Why don't they move? Like there, <laughs> when you make people victims then you can justify their treatment. You, you make them unworthy. Yeah. And it's just totally conditional. It's, it's the power of storytelling. You, it's the power of deciding, actually, this is a triumphant story of, of, of Chani's sister, Pearl, 50-some-odd years later, standing on a stage and telling the story that so many others have, have taken and, and used for whatever purposes and returning it to, 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 to her lips for what she needs it for. And, and it's a story of survival. That's, that's and a choice, you, you know? Yes. Yeah. And then that's why, I, you know, I wrote, like, I wish if I could have that story back, I wish that the headline of that story is residential school survivor helps dying rock star confront death because that actually is what happened. That is the truth of what happened. It's Pearl's, Johnny's sister, Pearl. It's her strength and her love that not only, you know, brought her brother back to life, but it also helped this random stranger who showed up on her doorstep as he was dying. And she was nursemaid to the worst time of his life. I don't have a lot of regrets as I face my mortality, but that is one of them that I that I, I didn't know then what I know now and that I wasn't competent enough to tell that story in a way that would have been more meaningful and would have given us a, a, a place to go that's different than the place we've already been. And, and you're... you're... Whatever those regrets are, you're doing this. You're. I don't think I've I've ever been less articulate and less able to put into words what I'm trying to to what what I think and what I'm trying to say. And to do reconciliation right, it has to hurt. It has to be. It has to be uncomfortable. There, it's not a kumbaya. It's not a. It's not a hug. It's a. It's a struggle. And and it's. I guess the decision is you could say, okay, this is pity porn. We're on the wrong side of this. Let's stop doing it. And I don't think that solves anything or progresses anything. I was very glad to learn that you, you're feeling better and, and that you're back to work. It's so interesting to me that after talking about pity porn, you're in court today reporting for the CBC. You're telling stories again. But I guess you're working into the, your practice I don't know, opening up a dialogue and creating the opportunity for me to talk to, to somebody about this and, uh, and for many other people to think about what, what we're doing when we take on these stories. Yeah, and I, I don't think I could have gone back to work if I hadn't written this piece. Like, I really needed to work through that. And I, again, I am really grateful for the opportunity to talk about it with you and the opportunity I had to publish with Masonov. They they were great with me there. And also part of the reason I needed to write this was to hold myself to account. Like, that's the standard that I want to work to. And then... Um, the other thing I might as well break the news with you today, Jesse, is I I heard from my oncologist this morning, and my cancer is back. Um, so I'm I'm 
covering Barbara Kentner's uh, um, the, the trial of Braden Bushby um, is possibly my last act of journalism. And so I, I'm grateful I had the opportunity to do that as well as I could. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It, and it's, it's a strange um, coincidence. You know, uh, Barbara Kentner's funeral was one of the last things I covered um, before I first got sick. And, you know, there's no way it should have taken three years for that to get to trial. And somehow it did. And somehow that coincided with my being back. And so, you know, I think there's something that I was meant to learn from that. And I, I hope that maybe you and I have another conversation and we can, we can talk about that too. I, I hope so too. I, I'm really grateful that you talked to me today at all. Th thank you, Jody. No, it, it's kind of what got me through the day. So <laughs> was the chance to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, we can, we can hit stop now. Um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, well, I just, I, I actually, I just wanted to say one more thing sure. that, uh, and I mean this, I may have worked this little gem up too much in, in my own mind for it to be worthy of broadcast, but I want to give it a try because there is nothing that has reminded me more of the energy in a newsroom than the energy on a chemo ward. Like there, so the chemo comes through an IV drip. And when the IV finishes, there's an alarm that goes off on these machines. So there's a dozen people sitting around and, you know, this, these constant alarms going off and nurses running from uh, alarm to alarm to alarm. And like you can see their desks at the nursing station. There's the half-eaten lunches on the desk that's reminiscent of a newsroom. Mm -hmm. And this this sense of running to like this urgent thing, no, that urgent thing, no, this urgent thing. And as a patient sitting there, you know, you're like, how is there not a better way to do this? And you know the nurses are too busy to conceive of a better way. They're just going from alarm to alarm to, to alarm. And I really think that this is the point we're at in journalism. And we don't take the time to think and to talk about these things. And I, I you know, maybe it's too fine a point to to direct attention to the fact that actually what a chemo ward is, is putting poison into people's veins. And that perhaps journalists should think about what it is that we're putting into people's veins in the work that we do. That's your Canada Land. You can support us at canadaland.com join. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand, and our website is CanadaLand.com. Our producers this week are Rosalind Kufour and Gabe Knox. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, please support us. <laughs> <laughs>